As we get started this morning, I want to remind you that we're continuing our series in the book of Galatians. Um, We're going to be at the very end of Galatians chapter 3, the very beginning of Galatians chapter 4, so if you want to go ahead and and start moving to there in in your Bibles, that would be the place to be headed to. Um, This week we are finishing up chapter 3 and uh, uh, moving into chapter 4, but I just want to remind you of a couple of things. I want to remind you as we talked about this 2-2-2 structure of the book of Galatians. You've got the first two chapters of Galatians, which is Paul sort of telling his story. It's autobiographical, showing how God's grace has worked in his life and in his ministry. These middle two chapters in which we're in is, is him making biblical arguments um, and sort of appealing and looking to uh, Scripture. And we're going to see some of that this morning, some more of that this morning. And then the last two chapters that we will um, be getting to in a couple of weeks are sort of the application of this. We are right here in the middle of the book of Galatians. And in fact, the passage that we're looking at today is a bit of a hinge in Galatians. Uh, It's a bit of a turn as as he moves from laying the groundwork of his argument and and showing it and demonstrating it, his argument of, of grace, saved by grace alone and by faith alone through Christ alone, and moving into what that looks like in our lives. We're going to be talking today about adoption. And, and this biblical idea of adoption, that we've been adopted by God and into God's family. You know, I have, I have several friends who have adopted. Um, uh, I had one, uh, one couple that I knew when I was at Wake Forest um, who had gotten married, and, and they felt very specifically called to adopt. And so they adopted actually a brother and a sister um, they were only looking to adopt one child, and, and of course, when they got the call that we have a brother and a sister, that quickly became two. They were not going to separate this brother and sister, but they adopted a brother and sister from Ethiopia. And it was eye-opening to me. This, this, was the first, this was a number of years ago. This was the first couple that I had known as an adult who had adopted, and it was eye-opening to me the incredibly horrific things that people would say to them. Oh... You couldn't have any real children? Oh, but, but don't, you, don't you just mourn that you can't have children of your own? Interestingly, they went on to have several biological children. They adopted because they felt called by God to adopt, not because it was a last resort. You know... I think it's really great that you adopted, but I just don't think that I could love an adopted child as much as I would love one of my own. And we're not even going to touch the comments that they got in, 20, in 2009 and in, 2020, in 2010 as a white couple adopting two kids from Ethiopia. We're not even going to touch the racial comments that were made to them. Mainly because I don't feel like Repeating that poison. Now, I also have known people in my life, one of my best friends growing up was adopted. Let's talk about the horrific and horrible things that are said to kids that are adopted. Hey, don't you want to know who your real parents are? How does it know to feel like nobody wanted you? These are actual, real things that have been said to real people that I know. And see, the things that these hurtful things say, and and I'm going to point out, 
that my best friend growing up who was adopted, I knew him from church. These were things that were said by church people to him. The couple that I knew who adopted kids from Ethiopia, they were active and involved in their church. This was stuff church people said to them. And these comments show us that that we have this, this misunderstanding of what it means to be a part of God's family. Because the description that we're given to be a member of God's family is the description of adoption. Even our insistence on creating a difference between adoption and biological families show that we are making categories and categorizing kids on the basis of flesh and blood and not on something greater. On, a, on, on love and connection and family. And so as we struggle with real families, as we struggle with physical families around this, it means that we're going to struggle to understand the gospel that tells us a story about spiritual, transracial, transethnic adoption that changes us for eternity. We are adopted into a family of God, and the implications of that are huge if we are to understand what it means to live out our faith. And it's even huge in us simply understanding what our faith means. And so we are in Galatians. We're going to start with uh, chapter 3, verse 26, and we're going to read through seven, uh, verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. I will get it out eventually. Will you stand with me as you're willing and able as we read God's word together? For through Christ, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you were no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear God, as we turn to your word this morning, I just pray that what you have to tell us about your love for us, about your adoption for us, about your placement of us in your family, I just pray that it would enter our hearts and that it would form the very core of who we are. And God, as we turn to your word, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So as we think about Paul's words here about adoption, we need to think about what Paul has been saying in Galatians about salvation more, more broadly. 
And the argument, the whole argument that has been made in Galatians, as I stated a while ago, is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are three of what we might call the Reformation solas. Because in uh, the, the language of the Reformation is it was happening across national lines. The language of the Reformation was Latin. And so it was sola fide, sola Christus, Sola gracia, sola fide, sola Christus. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And so in Galatians 1, we saw that God's pleasure in us is not based on our performance for him. We are in not, and indeed cannot, be work, or we are not working to earn God's favor. We, we can't earn God's favor. It's not possible for us to earn God's favor. And the argument that that's what we're doing, that we are working to earn God's favor, that we're doing these things, we do X, Y, and Z, and we get a little check mark or a little gold star or, or however that works, that argument that that's what we're doing, that is legalism. And that's the main thing that Paul is addressing and arguing against throughout Galatians. Legalism is the, the idea that in working in our own power, according to our own rules, we can earn God's favor. Legalism is Jesus plus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus saves, but we've got to do this other stuff. Jesus plus. Not Jesus alone. Not Christ alone. We also addressed, as Paul showed us in chapter 2 of Galatians, we also want to address hypocrisy. And we want, to, we want to make sure that we are doing all that we can to avoid hypocrisy, to avoid living lives that don't match the gospel that we proclaim. This is, this is Paul's argument with Peter. This is Peter knowing separation from those who are Gentile-born means nothing in God's kingdom, and yet... When he comes and he's around other people and other Jews, he pulls himself away from the, the common table and sits only with the cool kids. We are saved through faith alone. God's pleasure in us is not based on what we have done or can do, but only in what Christ has done for us. And as such, we trust in Christ alone. We don't trust in the law. We don't trust in the works of our own hand. We don't trust in, as the argument was in the church in Galatia, circumcision. That was their argument. Our argument might look something different. But we don't trust in that. We trust in Christ alone. And in doing so, in trusting in Christ alone, we are accepted by God and live in Him. That's sort of the first two chapters of Galatians. That's the argument that Paul has been making. In chapter 3, he makes this turn away from his autobiography, away from his story, and makes this turn to the Bible. And in chapter 3, last week, we covered 2,000 years of Old Testament history. You know, when we were in high school and you would start like American history, it was always a question as to whether or not you would like get to the 20th century. 
you would take a whole year to cover from, from the pre-Columbian period, and then maybe, if you were lucky, you got to the Gilded Age in the late 19th century. I just want to point out that last week, in 30 minutes, I covered 2,000 years of history. I was able to do it because I had a, a, a very good guide in Paul's third chapter. But we, we talked about Abraham and the promise that was given to Abraham, that initial promise, that from Abraham, Abraham's seed, that the promise would come and that he, that he would be a blessing to all of the people, all of the nations. And then we talked about Moses and, and the reception of the law. And then we talked about, about Christ. And how really Christ, Jesus Christ, is the climax of history. Jesus is, Jesus is the center pin, the linchpin, the hinge. Everything depends, everything hangs, everything pivots around Christ. Because the promise that God gave to Abraham and the law that he gave to Moses both point us to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law. And Jesus completed the promise. And it's because Jesus fulfilled the law and Jesus completes the promise that salvation can only come through and by Christ. And so the main doctrine, if we're going to use that word, the main, the main sort of big thing that we've been talking about in these three chapters is this doctrine, this idea of justification. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And if you remember we defined justification um, as the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus. Justification means that by grace through faith we are right before God the judge. Our righteousness doesn't, doesn't have to be something that we are earning because Christ has already earned it for us. Christ, Christ alone is our righteousness. Our reward, our righteousness is in heaven and our standing before God is not based on what we do, but solely based on the righteousness of the one who sits at God's right hand. We've, we, we talk about this Sometimes we, we miss this conversation. We miss this important aspect of justification. We talk about Jesus and His death and the forgiveness of our sins. But we forget this second aspect that not only are our sins forgiven, but that we are also clothed in Christ's righteousness. Our sins are put on to Christ and Christ's righteousness is put on to us. It's a, it's a transfer a double transfer. I don't know about you, but I find incredible relief and incredible freedom. And we're going to get to freedom in a little bit in, as we talk about the book of Galatians when we get to chapter 5. But I find enormous freedom in knowing that my status before God is not dependent on what I have done or what I will do, but is dependent on Christ alone. Because I don't know about you, 
but I can be a bit of a screw-up. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. I don't know about you, but I can get angry. We went to Costco yesterday. Somebody left their cart in the middle of the parking lot. I am really glad that my righteousness before God is not dependent on how I responded, even on the inside, to the fact that somebody left their grocery cart in the middle of the Costco parking lot. I, I have to drive on 95 on occasion. I'm really glad that my righteousness is not dependent on how I drive on 95. I'm really glad that my righteousness is not dependent on how I responded and the words that came out of my mouth the night that I was in college and somebody broke into my room and tried to stab me as they stole my stuff. Because let's be clear, there were things that came out of my mouth that you don't want to hear your pastor say. I'm really glad that my righteousness is not dependent on whether or not I abstained from the consumption of alcohol in my early 20s. I didn't. I'm really glad that my righteousness is not dependent on me. Because if it was dependent on me every day, I would throw it away a hundred thousand times. My righteousness is dependent on God my righteousness is dependent on Christ and on Christ alone. You know, we, we can't, I, I don't think that we can overemphasize the importance of justification. It, it is incredibly important. It is, it, is, it is central to what we believe. And I think as followers of Jesus, we need to have a strong understanding of justification, of how this works, of our forgiveness and Christ's gift of His righteousness. But justification is not the end of the Gospel. And in fact, it may not even be the greatest gift of the Gospel. J.I. Packer wrote a, wrote a classic book back, I think, in the 70s called Knowing God. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. And, and he wrote about, about this idea in knowing God, toward the end of knowing God. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the Gospel offers. Higher even than justification. This may cause the raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift on which, since Luther, evangelicals, he mean, meaning Protestants, have, have laid the greatest stress. And we are accustomed to say almost without thinking that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. Skips ahead a little bit. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the Gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. See, justification makes us right before God the judge. Adoption shows us that we are loved by God the Father. In justification, the picture is legal. 
It is God sitting on the bench, passing judgment. But in adoption, the image is this. The judge comes down from the bench. He he comes over to you. He reaches down and removes your chains with his own hands. He stands up, embraces you, claims you as as his own, and says, guess what? You are coming home with me. We are God's children. That is, in its core, what it means to be a Christian. To be adopted. To be loved. To to be claimed. The essential element is to have God as our Father. You know, the church should be a people whose worship and whose prayers and whose outlook on life are, are, are prompted and controlled by the fact that we are children of God. We start here in verse 26. 326. For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. This is... This is the summary of everything that we have seen in Galatians to this point. And as I, and as I said, it's the, it's the sort of hinge that, that the rest of the book turns on as we move forward. But you may have noticed, as I read through today, as I read this passage, he says sons. He says sons over and over again. He doesn't say sons and daughters. So what's the deal? Is this, is this just Paul being a misogynist? Is this just Paul being chauvinistic? No, in other places, Paul, and certainly other places in Scripture, the phrase sons and daughters to refer to us is used a lot. Now, Paul's making a very particular argument and a particular point here. Because, see, this is about ancient family practices. I was watching a video the other day that was sort of tracking through the the Roman emperors from Augustus, well, really starting with Julius Caesar and then Augustus Octavian and then, and then down. And one of the things that's really interesting, in the first couple of hundred years of the empire, the crown, the Caesarship, doesn't pass to biological children. It passes to adopted sons. Because and this is just the way that it was, sons inherited. Daughters didn't. And so if we're talking about inheritance, if we're talking about what we inherit from God, then we have to be adopted as sons. Just as Julius Caesar adopted Octavian, we have to be adopted by God. Paul has this, has this, this issue here where he says... Um, and the four one, and now I say that as long as the heir is a child, and so there's this difference between between being a child of someone and being a son of someone, and that, that's hard for us to wrap our brains around. Now, in our world, in our culture, and our with our understandings and our laws, but this is this is what Paul is is talking about. This is what Paul is is getting into is this idea of of sonship and of adoption. 
Now, I want to be very, very clear here. Paul is actually far from endorsing this idea, being very kind of countercultural about it. Let's look at 3.28. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. It doesn't matter who you were born to be. You can be adopted by God. Unlike in ancient Rome, you had to be born a free male Roman citizen in order to be adopted. That's not the case. Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, you can be adopted by God. There there are two actions that, that God takes to adopt us. First, God sent His Son so that we might receive the position of sons, of heirs. See, adoption, if we think about adoption, adoption requires someone who comes at the right time. Right? If you are going, if you, if parent A is going to adopt child Y, parent A and child Y have to be, you know, in the same place at the same time. That's the way it works. It's, it's got to come at the, at the right time. Adoption requires someone comes at the right time. Now, it was Jesus came at the right time. He came at the right time theologically. He comes at this, at this culmination of God's story in the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament pointing to Him, pointing to Christ, comes at the culmination of that. Christ comes at the right time religiously, not only in the religion of the Jews, but in the religion of the wider world. There's a spiritual hunger that exists in the early first century, not only among the Jews who are hungering and waiting and anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, but there is also just this amazing hunger, spiritual hunger among the Roman pagans. We see so many sort of weird religions and cults born around this time in the Roman world. He comes at the right time culturally. There's a universal language. For the first time in a thousand years, there was a, there was a universal language. It wasn't really Latin, it was Greek. People who were learned could read and write and speak Greek. The world has, had become interconnected in a way that it had never been before. And, and I think sometimes we get really focused on the Mediterranean world and on the Roman world, but, but Rome is in, is in contact with China and India, with sub-Saharan Africa. It's really only, honestly, the Western Hemisphere. The Americas that are sort of disconnected. He also comes at the right time politically. This is the height of Pax Romana, man. This Roman Empire makes it possible because there are roads and there's a degree of safety and security and you can travel all over the place. So adoption requires someone arrive at the right time. We see that Jesus arrives at the right time. Adoption requires the right qualifications. 
If you ever known someone who has gone through the process of adoption, man, it is tough. You've got to meet with social workers and meet with counselors and meet with all these other people to make sure that you are qualified. Jesus was qualified for the adoption. He was fully divine. He was fully human. He was fully righteous. Adoption also requires that someone has the right resolve. It is not easy to adopt. If you've known anybody who's ever gone through the process, it is not easy. It's not easy and it's not cheap. It's hard and it's expensive and you don't get through it unless you are determined to do it. And Christ had the right resolve. He was determined to redeem us and in fact died to rescue us. We were able to be adopted because the right person showed up at the right time in the right place at the right moment in history, had all the right qualifications and had the right resolve. God sent His Son. What a, what a radical action on the part of God. And second, God sent His Spirit after the Son so that we might experience the privileges of heirship. You know, when you adopt, the day that you bring that child into your home, that's not the end of the story, is it? Just like when you come home from the hospital with a baby, that's not the end of the story. That's, that's the beginning of the story. That's the beginning of the journey of you as a family. And it's the same when we are adopted by God. Starting in the 19th century, man, we got this idea, this sort of revivalistic idea that comes in and it says, well, of course I'm a Christian because I prayed a prayer and I got baptized and that's, that's sort of it. I'm done. I've done my part. I checked the box. And that kind of Christianity, that kind of faith shouldn't, shouldn't satisfy us. We should want more. We should want to build relationship, right? If you bring a child into your house and then you never touch them again, you never talk to them again, you never interact with them again, that's not a relationship, is it? We're able to do this. We're able to build this relationship with God through the Holy Spirit that God has sent. We... We live a new identity before God. Paul talks about this. He uses, he uses a couple of different ways to express this. First of all, he, he talks about us being baptized into Christ. And let us talk about baptism. We are Baptists, so we know what baptism means. Baptizo means to be immersed. It means to be dunked. It means to get put under the water. doesn't mean to have a little water sprinkled on your head. I'm sorry. Baptism means, the word means to be dunked. And so when, when Paul is saying we are baptized in Christ, what he means is that we are immersed in Christ. We are plunged under the water of Christ. He talks about that we are clothed in Christ. And this is, this is kind of weird, I think, for us. But we've got to think about, right, he's been talking about this this idea of of child to heir, child to son. There's a certain element here where he's talking about a 
a young child growing into an adult heir. And there was a moment in time in which in the, in the Roman and in the ancient world you were of a certain age and you wore a certain kind of clothing and when you came of age, you wore different clothing. You were clothed in, in new clothes that sort of spoke to your status, who you were, that you were an adult, that you were an heir. So when he says that we are clothed in Christ, this is, this is what he's talking about. That, that we've, we've passed from, from being children of God to being heirs of God. He also talks about us being united in Christ. We see that. I've already referenced um, 3.28, but we see that again. See, these, these barriers, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, these were barriers that separated people in the first centuries, and these are barriers that separate us still. We're still separated all too often along ethnic and racial boundaries, along social boundaries, and along gender boundaries. Now, I want to be clear. Paul is not saying here that you lose your distinctions in Christ. If you are Irish and you become a Christian, you're still Irish. If you're a woman and you become a Christian, you're still a woman. You don't suddenly stop being those things. But what Paul is saying is that there are no barriers, there are no longer any barriers that divide God's people. This is the, this is the beauty of the church, and it's part of the promise to Abraham, right? That his seed would be a blessing to who? All people. The beauty of the church is that people are united not by ethnicity or socioeconomic status or by gender, but rather we are united by Christ. And that in fact, we all stand before God in the same way. We all stand before God in need of Christ, dependent on Christ, none of us better or worse. Finally, we, Paul talks about us belonging to Christ. And he's talking here about a kind of belonging that, that places us in this unity and in the same line of the Old Testament saints, in the, in the same line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel. We're united in Christ. And finally, because of the Spirit, we can enjoy intimacy with God. He, he talks here about, about crying out, our heart crying out, Abba, Father. This, this is a, talking about a, a kind of intimacy, but a kind of longing, a kind of groaning. This is how Jesus calls out to God in the garden. John Wesley talked about the fact, you know, he was, a, he was an Episcopal priest. He was a, not, a, a priest in the Church of England. And he did all the right things, man. He visited, he visited people in prison and he fed the poor and he came to, to Georgia to be a missionary. And yet he would tell you, he would say later that he never knew God because he, he, was a, he had the faith of a servant serving God, but not the faith of a son. He didn't have that intimacy with God. We also are in guaranteed inheritance from God because of the Spirit. We are no longer a slave, but a son, an heir. And heirs... What? Heirs inherit. The, the, the inheritance is this. An eternal father 
who's a, a better, fuller father than even the best father on earth. I know that lots of folks have issues with fathers. But God the Father is the, the perfect father. You are secure in his love. Fully in his family. There is nothing that you can do to stop him from loving you. Even when you fall, he is our father and he doesn't stop loving us. Your inheritance is also to be part of an eternal family. To be united in Christ. To share in Christ. To share the good and the bad. Christ suffered. And sometimes his brothers and sisters, his family is called to suffer alongside of him. But also in the good and the glory that is Christ. And the final part of our inheritance is an eternal home. An eternal place. An eternal place where you were loved and where people know you and where, where you, you, you are taken for who you are and you are accepted and loved. And it can never be taken away from you. We're seeing people right now in Ukraine whose homes are being taken away from them. Our homes here can always be taken away from us. But our eternal home can never be taken away from us. We come to this table this morning. We come to this table as part of this family. We come to this table as heirs of God. This is part of our inheritance. We are reminded at this table was done to procure our adoption. You know, these days, luckily, all it takes to adopt a child is to sign the right paperwork and pay the right money and, and, and sometimes take a, a very long flight to somewhere overseas. But your adoption was much more costly than that. Your adoption required the breaking of a body and the spilling of blood. On the night that he was to be betrayed, Christ met with his disciples in an upper room. He took the bread that they were going to eat and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. In the same way, after the meal was over, Christ took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, shed for you and for the many. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, eat in remembrance of him. Sisters and brothers, this is the cup of the new covenant. The blood of Christ, shed for the forgiveness of your sins, the cost of your adoption. Drink in remembrance of him. Scripture tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. This is a meal of adoption. This is a family meal that says that you have an eternal father who has eternal love that has brought you into an eternal family and given you an eternal home. Let us remember 
the cost of our own adoption. We're going to end our time together by singing, Blessed be the tie that binds. I would invite you, if you 